Welcome to the Lake Point Church Weekend Messages Podcast. Thanks for joining us to hear the latest sermons happening at our church. We pray that God speaks to you in a timely way through this message. And if you're encouraged by this podcast, be sure to rate, review, and share it to help get the word out. You can find more digital content to feed your faith and our other podcasts by visiting lakepoint.church/digital. Now, let's tune into the message for today. What's up, Lake Point family? Uh, thanks for joining us uh, this weekend. My name is Mike Bro, and I get to be on the uh, teaching team around this place and really looking forward to uh, seeing you face-to-face sometime soon. Uh, but I just want to pause for a second just tell you that I, I continue, as you do, I'm sure, uh, to really pray for uh, all the frontline workers uh, that are in all of this. I mean, there's a lot of people struggling these days. So don't, don't forget throughout the day just to lift up people in your prayers. Families are grieving got kids adjusting to like a, a plan B and praying for wisdom for all of our leaders at a church level, local level, state level, a national level, churches all over the world uh, having to make hard decisions right now. So, uh, so much going on and it just, all that's going on demands our humility and it demands our love and our patience and our courage and our compassionate actions. So let's not grow weary in doing good stuff. Let's honor each other above ourselves and let's continue to be a light in, in the darkness. Uh, we're in this series that we're calling Threeology, unpacking some uh, big words, some big concepts from the pages of the Bible. Last week, Josh taught about the concept of covenant. And you can catch that super helpful message online. It was so good. And today, I want to unpack the word atonement. And, and to do that, I want to talk about shadows. Uh, I, I was taking a little, a little hike on a family trip this summer, and I, I just loved the way the sun was filtering through these oak trees, throwing long shadows on, on, on the trees that were there, pointing to this clearing uh, ahead of the trail. Uh, I've told you before, I live in Ventura, California, and I love the way the mountains cast shadows over the ocean late in the day, and those shadows point to a beautiful sunset that's getting ready to happen. If you go downtown at night and you're walking and you see some shadows down a dark alleyway, you kind of steer clear because those shadows might reveal some potential danger lurking there. When Puxicani Phil, that little groundhog, pokes his head out of the ground on Groundhog Day, there, there will be six more weeks of winter if he sees his shadow. shadow. You got it. The Old Testament part of the Bible is full of shadows, shadows that point to what was to come, and not just for one nation, but for everybody on the planet. Uh, you, you can read the Bible like this a detailed historical narrative, or you can look at it like this antiquated book of unrealistic rules and demands, or you can read it like the epic love story that it is. 
Let me just give you a real quick synopsis of what the Bible is all about. Josh touched on this a bit last weekend. The epic story of God pretty much unfolds like this. God longs for a relationship with people like us. People like us broke that relationship. So God moves throughout history to restore the broken relationship with people like us. That's pretty much the Bible in a nutshell. And I love the way the message puts this verse from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Long before he laid down earth's foundations, he had us in mind, had settled on us as the focus of his love to be made whole and holy by his love. You see, this is a love story. I mean, even though God is the main character of the whole thing, we are his main pursuit. We are the object of his radical obsession. The, the Old Testament section of the Bible is full of what I would call shadows, shadows that point to something else, someone else who was coming, someone who would come and atone for, pay for, make things right with God, and not just for one nation, but for everybody. So some of you might know how God comes to a really old man named Abraham. And he tells Abraham that he and his wife, Sarah, are going to have a child. And God tells this older couple that from that child will, will, will come offspring that would outnumber the grains of sand on every beach in the world. Well, these two old people crack up. I mean, they lose it, especially his wife, Sarah, going, you're kidding me, right? So when the child was born, this, he, he was named Isaac, which means laughter. And it happens. From Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Joseph and his 12 brothers, they become this great nation, the nation of Israel. And you can read all about those stories in the first book of the Bible, a book called Genesis. So this great nation are in the land of Egypt and Joseph, one of their own, was in charge in Egypt. But when Joseph dies, it says that a new Pharaoh, a new king arises that does not, didn't know about Joseph. They didn't know about his faith. He didn't care anything about this blessing that was to come to the world through this nation. This Pharaoh was not sympathetic in the least to this growing number of people. In fact, his reign begins over 400 years of racial discrimination and brutal slavery for the Israelite people. Super evil guy. Really, really oppressive. And many of you know the Exodus story. It's the second book in the Bible called Exodus, how the Israelite people are finally delivered from their bondage by the power of God. Again, all of this is a shadow of a greater deliverance that would come someday. You might remember how God uses this guy named Moses who himself was a shadow pointing to another deliverer to come, that blessing for all the nations that God had promised Abraham would come through his offspring. So God meets with this guy named Moses. It's on the backside of a mountain called Sinai and tells him, Moses, I'm getting ready to move. I love my people. I have seen the trouble that they're in. I have heard their cries. I can't stand the injustice. I am going to deliver my people from slavery and abuse. And Moses, I want to use you to lead them out of Egypt. Now, Moses, make no mistake about it. It's not going to be about your own power. You just need to be available because the great I am is going to do it all. And so Moses goes to the evil Pharaoh and tells him, uh, God says you have to let his people go. Pharaoh laughs at Moses and his God says, no way. And he begins to make things worse for the Israelites because of Moses' request. 
So God sends a series of attention-getting plagues on Egypt, talking flies and frogs and hail and boils and finally death. And he tells the people of Israel that death would not touch them at all if they would kill a lamb and spread its blood over the doorframe of their homes. If they would do that, then death would pass over their families. Well, the blood of that lamb eventually bought their freedom, which, by the way, is a big-time shadow. In fact, still today, many Jewish people around the world gratefully celebrate the Passover every year. Now, you might remember, if you're familiar with the story at all, how Pharaoh finally tells Moses, okay, 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 take your people and get out of here. Then as he sees his free labor force leaving the country, he has a change of heart and comes after them with the full force of his army. Well, God, through Moses, miraculously leads them through the Red Sea on dry ground, and their past and their pursuers are buried there in the water. By the way, I think that's a shadow of what happens to many of us in our baptism. Our past and the things that held us captive just get buried there in the water. And as you might imagine, it was an awesome day for God's people in their history. They were finally free, and they were so grateful, and they sang, and they praised God. However, on the other side of the Red Sea, the people wouldn't always be so grateful. They wouldn't always sing songs of praise to the one who had rescued them from bondage, who had brought them up out of Egypt. In fact, they had extremely short memories like you and me. So God would give them object lessons, constant reminders of just who he was. For instance, he sends this bread-like substance called manna, which literally means, what is it? Because no one knew what it was. It would rain from the sky, and they would gather enough for each day, kind of that give us this day our daily bread lifestyle. God would miraculously send quail for them to eat. He would cause water to spring from rocks in the middle of the desert. He would guide them with a pillar of cloud by, by, by day and a, and a pillar of fire by night. All reminders of God's constant provision. All reminders of God's faithfulness as a father. And again, all those things, along with many, many others, were mere shadows of things to come. They pointed to things much greater that would happen someday. For instance, God tells Moses in Exodus 25, he says, I want you to have the people of Israel build for me a holy sanctuary so I can live among them. You must build this tabernacle and its furnishings exactly according to the pattern that I will show you. Now, anybody like to camp? You guys campers? You got any, any tent people? Anybody like to be under the sky, you know, the stars at night looking straight up in the open sky? RV people? Hotel people? We got a bunch of hotel people in this room, right? <laughs> now, this tabernacle uh, was this amazingly beautiful tent, which was kind of like God's RV that they could tear down and take with them on their road trip through the promised land. And God did give them very detailed blueprints of how it was all to be built and set up and designed and furnished. And all of it, all of it was a shadow of what was to come. All kinds of symbolism is contained in the tabernacle. And I don't have time to launch in to all that today, but there was a curtain around it. There was a courtyard. There was an altar of burnt, in, uh, burnt offering. There was a lampstand, a wash basin, an altar of incense, the holy place, a curtain separating the holy place from the most holy place, which signified the very presence of God. And all of those things, every one of those things were shadows of what was coming. 
And do you know where God told them to set up his tent? I think it's cool that he doesn't ask them to set his tabernacle up on the outskirts, out on the outskirts in his own private villa estate. God says, no, I want, you, I want to live right smack dab in the middle of the camp. He wanted to be right in the middle of their lives. Again, guess what? A shadow. Did you know that God wants to be right in the middle of your life? He wants to be not one of the many spokes on the wheel of your life. He wants to be the hub of your life around which everything else in your life will revolve. And this is so cool. When we invite Jesus Christ to become the forgiver of our sin, to let him restore that broken relationship that our sin and our rebellion has caused, God's spirit comes down and catch this, dwells not in a tent, not in a tabernacle, not in a temple, not in some church building made by human hands, but inside your heart. He's saying all of us, just like he said to Israel, I wanna dwell with you. I want to do life with you every day. I want to be right in the center of your life. Now, in this uh, most holy place of the tabernacle was this chest made of acacia wood. It was uh, four feet long by two and a half feet wide. It was covered with gold. It was called the Ark of the Covenant, the word that Josh talked about last week. You may be seeing the old Indiana Jones movies where the evil Nazi's face melts off. It's gross. But anyway... <laughs> This Ark of the Covenant was a shadow box, so to speak, representing God's promise, representing God's covenant with the people and their covenant with God. Does anybody know what was inside the Ark of the Covenant? Yeah, inside the Ark were these tablets upon which God had handwritten the original like top 10 list. And these 10 commandments were to be a blueprint for the kind of life that God wanted them and all of us to live. So Moses climbs up Mount Sinai to appear before God. And God tells him, I think I've clearly demonstrated my affection and faithfulness to all of you. And now I want to give you some guidelines to live by that will not only be a great way to live your life, but will give the people a chance to demonstrate their faithfulness back to me. So he invites Moses and his brother Aaron to come up to Mount Sinai where God verbalizes these 10 commandments along with some other guidelines. And Moses comes down from the mountain and he shares the 10 commandments that God had told them about. For instance, God, God tells them, number one, you shall have no other gods before me. I am the one true living God. Don't, don't put any little G God in front of me. In fact, don't make any idols to bow down and worship them. It'd be foolish for you to carve a piece of wood and bow down to something that's been created. Worship the creator. And, and, don't, and don't misuse my name. Don't profane my name. Don't take my name in vain. Don't think of me flippantly in, in those ways. And, and, and I want you to, to take aside, set aside one day a week and, and we'll call it Sabbath where, where you can rest and you can worship and you can refuel and you can reflect. Keep that day set apart. Keep that day holy. Now the first four were all about our relationship with God. They're all vertical things, the, the, the things that make us really, really connect with God. And then the next six are like all horizontal things, the way we behave with each other. He says, first of all, the first person you're going to meet when you come into the world is your mom and dad, so I want you to make sure that you honor them. And the word honor literally means to attach a high price tag to. So honor them, attach a high value to the people that brought you into the world. Honor them. And I want you to value life. Don't murder. Don't take somebody's life. Just don't do that. 
Don't take another's life. And while you're at it, don't take another's wife either. Don't commit adultery. Be faithful to your own spouse. And don't steal stuff that doesn't belong to you. Don't take things that don't belong to you. I don't want anybody stealing. And, and, and don't, don't lie either. Don't give false testimony. Don't lie. And don't, don't be envious toward other people. Don't be jealous. Don't, don't covet other people's stuff. Those were the commands that Moses brings down from God. And so Moses tells all the people uh, these commands, and the people say, they respond, they say, no problem, God. We, 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 we got it. We can do all of that. That sounds like a pretty good way to live. You got a deal. So this throng of Israelites, like two million strong, say in one voice, everything the Lord has said, we will do. Say that with me. Everything the Lord has said, we will do. They're saying, you've kept your promise, Lord. We will keep ours. Yep, we are all in. Whatever you want us to do, you are Yahweh. You are our deliverer. You are Elohim. You are the one true God. And so God says, okay, Moses, come, come back up on the mountain, hang out with me, and I'm gonna write these in stone so that you'll always have them with you. Now, Moses knows, as every good leader does, the, the people that he leads, and he knows that the children of Israel need a babysitter. So he leaves his brother Aaron behind to keep an eye on them. And while Moses is gone, guess what starts happening in base camp? I mean, you won't believe this. The people grow impatient while Moses is gone. I mean, one week turns to two weeks, and two weeks turns into three. And they begin to ask all sorts of questions like, where, where in the world is that guy Moses? Is he ever coming back? I bet he's not, not even alive. And it says this in Exodus 32, when the people saw how long it was taking Moses to come back down the mountain, they gathered around Aaron. Come on, they said, make us some gods. Yeah, that's what we need. Make us some gods who can lead us. We don't know what happened to this fellow Moses who brought us here from the land of Egypt. You see, you can take the kids out of Egypt, but it's hard to take Egypt out of the kids. They had all grown up with this polytheistic culture full of fake gods. I mean, there were so many gods in Egypt. Here a God, there a God, everywhere a God, God, you know? And they had just seen, they had just witnessed with their own eyes the one true God crush all these other so-called gods of Egypt. They had just walked across the Red Sea on dry ground with water walled up beside them. They had just been delivered by God's mighty hand from their, from their abusers. They had just said with one voice, everything the Lord has said, we will do. And God hadn't even had a chance to inscribe the first two commandments and the people are coming to Aaron saying, that dude Moses led us out here in the middle of nowhere. He's probably dead and gone. So here's the deal. We want a God, yeah. We need a God. Let's make a God. And Aaron, this guy who had seen miracle after miracle, this guy who had been the voice for his stuttering brother Moses, this guy who had been there with Moses on that mountain heard God say, listen guys, first things first, make sure you tell them no other gods. This same guy Aaron says to the people, okay, and the story tells how they give him all the gold and jewelry the Egyptians had given them on their way out of town, and they fashion this golden calf. And Aaron says, this is your God. This is the God 
who brought you out of Egypt. It's unbelievable. And the people begin to worship and dance around this golden calf. They're drinking and getting wasted and doing all kinds of crazy stuff. And Moses starts back down the mountain. He's got the tablets in his hand. As he gets about halfway down, he hears the music. He hears the drums. And the closer he gets, he sees this wild, I'm talking wild, wild, wild party going on in front of this golden fake God in the center of all of it. And in a fit of rage, Moses becomes the only person to ever break all 10 commandments in less than a second. He slams the stone tablets to the ground and shatters them into pieces. And he runs over and confronts his brother Aaron. He says, what are you doing? Come on, man, I asked you to watch after them. What is this? And Aaron comes up with this lame excuse. I mean, this is so classic. It sounds like something I might have said. Exodus 32, verse 24. Aaron says this, well, I told them, whoever has gold jewelry, take it off. And when they brought it to me, I just simply threw it in the fire and out came this calf. Now, he's the stuttering brother. Going, I, 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 don't, I don't know how this happened. It just, just like, like came out like that. Psalm 106 puts it this way. They worship the golden calf because they forgot God. They forgot God. I mean, how do you do that? How do we do that? Moses has to go back up the mountain to get a replacement set of commandments now. And God gives him the exact same list of 10 that he'd given him before. Now, before we're too hard on Aaron and the Israelites, before we leave these 10 commandments, I want to quickly go through them. And I want you to keep track of the number that you've never broken. I don't want you to raise your hand wherever you're at. Just keep track of them in your mind. Then at the end... We're going to do a quick little survey just to see how good we really all are. So the first commandment says, no other gods before me. No other gods before me. If you've always put God first every day of your life, if you've always put God first in everything, you can count that as one that you've never broken. The second commandment says, don't make any graven images or idols and bow down to them. Now, we have talked a lot around here about how we can make idols out of a lot of things, cars, homes, money, jobs, fitness image, our kids, our relationships, but we're not going to count it that way. If you've never actually carved a graven image or an idol and bowed down before it and worshiped it, you can count that as one you've never broken. Aren't you glad that that one's like on, on the list? Third commandment says this. Don't take God's name in vain. Don't profane my name. If you've never, ever profaned the name of God, if you've never, ever used the name of Jesus Christ as a cuss word, if you've never flippantly used the popular phrase, OMG, you can count that one as one you've never, ever broken. The fourth commandment says, remember the Sabbath by keeping it holy, keeping it set apart. If you've always set apart a day of rest and worship, and spiritual refreshment, you can count that one as one you've never broken in your life. The fifth commandment says, honor your mother and your father. If, if as a child, you never ever disobeyed your parents, if as an adult, you've always shown proper respect for them, you've always honored them, you can count that one as one that you've never broken. The sixth commandment says, do not murder. Do not take another person's life. Now, if you've never murdered anybody, you can count that one as one that you've never, ever broken. Now, 
I gotta clarify, Jesus comes along and says, if you're angry and you have hate in your heart against somebody else, you're guilty of murder. We won't count it that way. If you've never physically murdered anybody, you can count that as one that you've never ever broken. The seventh commandment says, do not commit adultery. If you have never fooled around sexually before you were married, if after you were married, you've always maintained sexual exclusivity, you can count that one as one you have never broken. Now again, Jesus kind of messes us up when he comes along and says, even if, even if you lust after somebody in your heart, you're guilty of adultery. We won't count it that way. If you've never committed the act of adultery, you can count that one as one you've never broken. The eighth commandment says, do not steal. Don't steal. If you've never stolen anything, I'm talking a quarter out of your mom's purse, not a grape from a grocery store, not a towel from a Holiday Inn Express, not an answer off somebody else's test, not $1 from the IRS, you can count that one as one you have never broken. The ninth commandment says, don't lie. If you've never told a lie, you are right now. <laughs> the 10th commandment says, don't covet. If you've never been envious toward a neighbor, somebody at school, if you've never been jealous of somebody you work with, if you never said, you know, oh man, I wish I had that, I wish I had that, I wish I had that, I wish I had their body, their boyfriend, their girlfriend, I wish I had their talent. If you've never done any of that, man, you can count that one as one that you've never broken. Now, let's just see how good we are. How many of you could say, I have kept all 10 commandments, all 10? All right, what about nine? Eight? Man, there's a wicked bunch of people. I mean, it's, now, these commandments that God handed down, they really are the best way to live. They are the moral blueprint for a, for a great life. It is the kind of description of the kind of life that loves God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then loves your neighbor as yourself. That's just one, that's two commandments in, in the one, the, the greatest commandments. But these 10 commandments were so much more than that. You know what they really were? Yep, a shadow of what was to come. And I've always loved the way the Phillips translation puts all of this. It says in Romans chapter three, verse 20, no man can justify himself before God by a perfect performance of the law's demands. Indeed, it is the straight edge of the law that shows how crooked we really are. You see, the primary purpose of the 10 commandments, the law, was not so much to make us better, but to make us see our need for a deliverer. It's the straight edge of the law that reveals just how crooked we really are. Now, I want you to see how the passage continues. One of the most pivotal passages in the whole New Testament of the Bible. But now, God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are, for everyone is sent. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, with undeserved kindness, declares that we are righteous, and he did this through Jesus Christ when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. You see, these Ten Commandments don't make us better. 
They help us see who we really are and how much we need God's grace, how much we need that promised Savior, somebody who could atone for, somebody who could pay the price for our sin, cancel the debt for our rebellion. They are all a shadow a pointing to a baby in a manger. They're a shadow pointing to a water-walking, lever-touching, barrier-breaking, all-people-embracing deliverer. They are a shadow pointing to the blood-stained cross of Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 10 says, the old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come. Not the good things themselves. The sacrifices under the system were repeated again and again, year after year, but they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. For God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. You know, I I don't know whether you guys have ever wondered this or not, but I've often wondered what the followers of Jesus did the night after he was crucified. These would have been Jewish men and women who would, have, who would have known about all this history I'm talking about. They would have known about all the shadows. They were acquainted with all that stuff, just not realizing that they were, in fact, shadows. Now, we do know that they gathered kind of huddled, afraid in a hiding place after Jesus was, was killed. But I've just always wondered what went on in that room. What did they do Saturday night? And they, they, they have a wake for Jesus? Did they tell stories? Did they, did they reminisce? I mean, a lot of us do that to cope with our grief, right? So I don't know. I mean, maybe a few of them got up and said a few words, like, like people do at, at, at a wake. And again, this, this is all speculation on, on my part. But maybe, just maybe, like this guy James stands up and he says, uh, hey, some of you, you know my brother, uh, John, and how Jesus called us the sons of thunder. Uh, oh, we've been hanging out with Jesus for the past three years, and uh, we actually left our fishing business to follow him. And to be honest, many of you know, uh, we wanted to rise to power with him. See, both of us, and especially me, always had a little problem with envy. It's always been something I've, I've wrestled with. Some of you guys know that we got in an argument the other night about who was going to get to sit in power at Jesus' right side when he came into his kingdom. I just made a fool on myself. And I don't know about you guys, but I felt about this big when Jesus stooped down and he washed our feet. I hope I never, ever forget that lesson. Then maybe another guy stands up and says, well, I'm a relatively new follower of Jesus. I haven't hung out with him like some of you guys. And in fact, the first time I saw Jesus was actually the first time I ever saw, period. I was, I was, I was born blind. Uh, some of you may recognize me. Jesus took pity on, on me uh, one day. He reached down, and he picked up some dirt, and he spit on it. And he made some mud. He put it on my eyes. He told me to go to the pool and wash it off, and I did. Man, I could see. I wanted to sing. I wanted to dance. I wanted to hug everybody in sight, man. It was party time for me. But the religious folks, they, they ruined the party. They got ticked at Jesus. You know what? They, they said he, he healed me on the Sabbath. They couldn't believe he had the audacity to break their rules. I don't know about all that, but I do know this. I once was blind. Now I see. Then 
and maybe a distinguished looking guy gets up and goes, well, I'll go, I'll go next. Um, even though I'm embarrassed to say that this after listening to him, but I was one of those religious folks that ruined his party that day. My name is Nicodemus and I'm a Pharisee. I'm a religious scholar. I'm an intellectual. It's part of my problem. Used to be so proud of that. I was supposed to be known as somebody close to God, but the truth is I exchanged a relationship with God for my religion. I worshiped a system. And I'd never heard Jesus speak, but I got to hear him one day and he taught like no one had ever heard before. I actually got to meet with him secretly one night, put his hands on my shoulders and told me that night I need to be born again. Said that the Spirit of God wants to change a person from the inside out. It wasn't about external religious rules. He told me that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. He told me that. He made me think like nobody has ever made me think and made me think with my head and my heart. And that's why I'm now proud to be counted among his followers. And that's why I was humbled yesterday to take his body down off the cross along with my friend Joseph and prepare it for burial. Because of him, I've traded in my religion for a relationship. Then maybe an old woman moves to the front, kind of shuffles up and says, you know, I, I have a, I'm not much of a public speaker. And I know most of you have a much better story, but I just wanted to stop and express my thanks for the way Jesus made me feel so honored the other day. I was always honored, taught to honor people, my parents, my husband, my neighbors, God. And honestly, for the last uh, years, I felt disrespected, especially since my husband died. And you know how this culture is not easy for a widow like me. Had to grow to work just scrubbing the floors of rich people so I could put food on the table. And Honestly, a lot of them treat me like the dirt on their floors. But just last week, uh, when I was going to the temple to honor God with a little bit of money that I had, Jesus pointed me out to everybody there, told, told them that I was a true example of generosity. I can't tell you how good that made me feel. He made me feel, well, so honored. that maybe this little guy stands up and says, my name is Zacchaeus. I know I may not be the most popular guy in this room because of my former association with the Roman IRS, but uh, I'm now a grateful follower of Jesus. The first time I met Jesus, I was up in a tree. As you can see, I'm a little bit vertically challenged. And there's this huge crowd in the streets lining to see him. So I climbed up on the lower branches to catch a glimpse of this man that I'd been hearing so much about. And to my surprise, he looked up in that tree and he called me by name. Didn't know me from Adam. Called me by name, extended his hand, helped me down out of the tree, said, let's go grab some lunch. Well, that lunch changed my life. Jesus was so gracious and was so kind and honest. And I thought that's what I want to be. For the rest of my life, I have ripped so many people off. Even widows like that lady that just spoke. But I'm paying people back these days. I'm giving my stuff away. And truthfully, having a blast doing it. My heart is changing. So grateful that I met Jesus.
then perhaps Peter stands up. He says, well, you're not surprised that I would have something to say. Seems like I always open my mouth and put my foot in it. Like most of you remember a few nights ago, I promised Jesus I would always stand up for him that I had his back. What you may not know is this, when the pressure is on, I completely choked. When these people asked me if I knew Jesus, I got super defensive and I, I just totally lied about knowing him. Said I never heard of him, never seen him in my life. They kept insisting that they, they had seen me with him. Well, I went off and man, I just started cursing and profaning everything I could think to profane. And I, and I feel so ashamed. I just want to stand up in front of all you guys and just tell you it wasn't one of my better moments. I just want to confess this to you guys. And perhaps this woman stands up and says, uh, yeah, Peter, I know exactly what shame feels like. First time I met Jesus, I was naked. Now, let me explain. I was having an affair with this guy when some of the Pharisees burst into his bedroom. They dragged me out in the street. I didn't know what was happening. Everybody was screaming, shouting, adulterous, whore. I just trying to cover up myself as they threw me down the dirt right in front of Jesus. I mean, I was scared to death. And I knew, I knew that the punishment for adultery was being stoned to death. And I looked at so many of the people had already had large rocks in their hands. I was just, I was just waiting for the worst. I was waiting for those rocks to hit my body when, when he, Jesus, stooped down in the dirt with me. He lifted my head and looked me in the eyes. I had never been looked at by a man like that before. Never felt so much compassion, so much dignity, so much worth. And he told the crowd, if you've never sinned, go ahead and you can throw the first stone. And they dropped their rocks in the street and left us there all alone. I've never felt more loved in my life. He told me that I was not condemned, that I need to start living differently. And I am. And maybe, I don't know, an unexpected person stands up in the back of the room, really rough looking guy, and the room kind of gasps when he stands up. He goes, hey, I I know uh, you may be shocked to see me here tonight, but I had to stop by. My name is Barabbas. Don't be afraid. I'm not here to start anything. As most of you know, I should be dead right now. I was supposed to be executed this week. Been an angry man most of my life. And I've let that play out by taking out some of these Romans. I hate them. They even killed a few. But I had to stop by. Never really met Jesus, but uh, can I ask you? Like, how would you feel if somebody else died in your place? And then, I don't know, maybe John, Jesus' closest friend, stands up and says, Guys, guys, I, I finally get it. For God so loved the world that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I finally get it. Yeah. 
All these things that have happened to our people through the centuries, all the laws, all the rituals, all the sacrifices, all the images, everything the prophets said were all shadows of this day. For God so loved the world. He said, you know what, guys, the other night when Jesus, we were, we were all eating, eating the Passover meal together, and, and, and Jesus goes, this bread right here, this bread, this is my body broken for you. Guys, I get it. Jesus' body was broken for us. And when Jesus said, Jesus said, take this cup, this cup represents the new covenant in my blood, which will wash away the sins of many. Jesus' blood, Jesus' blood was applied to like the doorpost of our house. Jesus Christ, he is the Passover lamb. Guys, I get it. We couldn't do this. We could not do this. So he did this. See, God longs for a relationship with people like us. People like us broke the relationship. So God moved throughout all of history to restore the broken relationship with people like us. What can wash away my son? Nothing but the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. And today we're going to have a time to observe communion. It's going to be unique as you've heard. Or maybe you're going to do it in your home together. Grab whatever you got. Just remember the broken body of Jesus Christ. The spilled blood of Jesus Christ so that you and I could be free. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Jesus, so, so grateful that you were the one all the shadows were pointing toward. Thank you that you have atoned for our sins, that you have paid the debt, that they've been canceled, that you look at us, Father, just like we have never sinned, that you look through the blood of Jesus Christ and see spotless, blameless people. And God, we know that we're not, but you made us that way. And we are so, so grateful. And I pray that every day of our life, God, we would look grateful for what you have done, that you took the initiative and you came looking for us. So grateful, Jesus, that you chose to lay down your life on our behalf. No one killed you. No one murdered you. No one took your life from you. You laid it down. And we are so grateful this day. And I pray it all in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening today. For more biblical teaching and worship, join us for our church online live weekend services on Saturdays at 5 p.m and Sundays at 9.30 and 11 a.m. Central Standard Time. For more information about all the digital ministries of Lake Point, visit lakepoint.church/digital. digital.